Today we continue our study through Paul's letter to the Philippians. We have had some interruptions, but if the Lord tarries, we nevertheless will eventually complete this letter. And today we conclude chapter number one of Philippians. Now, in the first 11 verses of this chapter, Paul says that we are sons enjoying the fellowship of the gospel. In verses 12 through 26, he says we are servants fulfilling the furtherance of the gospel. And then in verses 27 through 30, he said we are soldiers defending the faith of the gospel. Now, I believe up to this point what the Apostle is saying is that we have received the gospel. Someone has shared the gospel with us. In my case, it was my parents who shared the gospel with me. But when we have received the gospel, then it becomes our responsibility to defend the gospel and pass it on to the next generation. It has been said we are always one generation away from atheism. If this generation who receives the gospel does not pass it to the next generation, then the gospel dies. So Paul says, then we have received the gospel, now we must defend it and pass it on to the generation following. So take your Bibles, look with me in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 27, and we conclude this chapter. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Three or four things I want you to see with me in this passage of Scripture. And first of all, Paul speaks about the conduct of the Christian. In verse number 27, he says, Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul is speaking about our walk, not our talk. There are some people who talk a good game, but they do not live it. Paul here is speaking about the way we live. He is speaking of our walk, not our talk. And he begins by talking about our standard of conduct. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the standard that you set is important because it becomes the goal of your life. It becomes the focus of your life. For instance, if one is a student... And their standard is an A, then that becomes the goal. That becomes the focus. And so they strive then to make that goal because that is their standard. Now, if, however, their standard is a C, I'm going to try to make a C, that also becomes their goal and that's what they strive to do. So Paul here is speaking about our standard of conduct. He is speaking about Christians and the way they live. Now, the world's standard is far different from God's standard. What is the world's standard? Well, it is worldly success. The world says that we need to be successful according to the world's definition of success. 
Recently, there has been a series done in the state newspaper about CEOs and their salary. Now, my guess is, if you take the newspaper, you probably looked at those salaries. Why do we do that? Well, because these people are put up as a success, and so we look at their salary and say, well, this guy makes X number of dollars. How much do I make? Because I want to know if I am a success. If he makes a lot more than I, then he is more of a success than I am. If you're a Gamecock fan, you're a Clemson fan or something else, you have your team. And so we look in the newspaper and they have the rankings there, the polls there. Who's number one? Where does my team rank? Because that determines whether or not my team is a success. We do the same thing in the church. We list our membership, we list our attendance, we list those kinds of things, and then we look at my church, where does my church fit in, because I want to know if my church is a success. So worldly approval, then, is the standard of the world. That's the reason we dress as we do, listen to the music that we do, do the things that we do, because it is our desire to have the approval of the world. Here's the problem for the Christian, however. We are to be a reflection of God, not a reflection of the world. Now, Paul was writing to the Philippians. Philippi was a city in Macedonia, but they were a Roman city. So Paul would say to them, even though you are living in Macedonia... You are a citizen of Rome, therefore you are to be a reflection of Rome. That's where your citizenship is. So in verse number 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is saying to us that you are citizens of the kingdom of God. So you are to live as a reflection of the kingdom of God. We are to be a reflection of His kingdom, not a reflection of the world. Now, how do we do that? How do we live in such a way that we reflect God? By living lives of purity. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So the Bible says then, as a citizen within the kingdom of God, I have been set apart to God and from the world. Therefore, I am to live a life of purity. I am to live a life of holiness because I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. We are to live lives of integrity. That is also our standard that we live lives of integrity. Job 31, 6 says, Let him weigh me with accurate scales, and let God know my integrity. Job said, I want to be a man of integrity. Even though I am going through the things that I am going through, even though I am suffering as I am suffering, I want to be a man of integrity. The Bible says in Proverbs 20, verse 7, A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. If you have a father who was a man of integrity, aren't you grateful for him? My dad's been gone a long time, died when he was 43. 
But I look back at his life and he was a man of integrity. He always did what he said he was going to do. He was always faithful to my mother. He was a man of godliness, a man of integrity. That's what it says in Proverbs. A man who is a man of integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. We are to be people of integrity because we are part of the kingdom of God. The Bible says that we are to live lives of love because we are part of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5:44, "But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven." So he talks about our standard. He says, "You are citizens of the kingdom of God, and our standard is to be a standard of integrity, of purity, of love." Then he talks about our stand in verse number 27. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Now, Paul's emphasis in this verse is unity, our unity within the kingdom of God. Being united and unity are not the same. We can be united but not have unity. Let me illustrate that for you. I knew a boy years ago who got two cats and tied their tails together and hung them over. And I know it was awful for him to do that. So if, uh, if you are in Peter or something, I agree with you. It is awful that he did that, but he did it anyway. So he got these two cats, tied their tails together, and hung them over a clothesline. Now, they were united, but there was no unity. So I want you to understand... That being united and unity are not the same. But Paul here is speaking about unity. Unity within the family of God. Unity within the kingdom of God. So what does he say? There's to be one spirit. And he says that again in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. So he says then, within the kingdom of God, there is to be one spirit. And yet you and I know that there is considerable division within the church of God today. We are divided over doctrine, we're divided over style, we're divided over methods, and so forth. So there is a great deal of division within the body of Christ today. Now, there is a growing division that concerns me somewhat. And that is the division between Calvinism and Arminianism. There are those who line up behind the sovereignty of God and emphasize the sovereignty of God. There are those who line up over here under the free will of man, behind the free will of man. And that's where they are. Now, the Bible teaches both to be true. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign, that man has free will. Both of them are taught. So... When someone embraces one to the exclusion of the other because both of them are scriptural, then there is division within the body. When Paul is saying there is to be one spirit. So there is also division, always has been, concerning spiritual gifts. That was a dividing line in the church in Corinth. They were divided because of their understanding of spiritual gifts, and we still are today. 
They were divided over leadership. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, 4, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? It's always interesting to me when people begin to say, well, I'm, I follow such and such preacher, or this is my preacher, and so forth. He says, are you not mere men? Now, you can go the other way because there were those who said, we don't follow any of them, we just follow Jesus. And it's the same thing. So there was that division. So the church in Corinth was divided over leadership, and Paul is saying, you're carnal in the way that you're approaching it. We divide over music. As to what is acceptable, this is acceptable, that's not acceptable, as if it were up to you and me anyway. One spirit, one mind, he says. He repeats that in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no division among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, folks, I don't think at all that means that we have to agree on every doctrine, we have to agree on all these things. But I do believe that we should be of one mind concerning the essentials of the faith. The deity of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the return of Jesus. Those essentials, I think that they are dogmatic and we are to be of one mind. When the Bible speaks dogmatically, then we ought to be of one mind. Then he speaks of our striving in verse number 27, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word striving together is our word from which we get athletics, and it means uh, teamwork. It's speaking about a team. The word striving together speaks about teamwork. It speaks of a team, that we are a team. There was a Little League Baseball team that had gone out, and there's a little boy had on his uniform, had his glove. He's out there, and a guy came by and saw him, and he said, Now, what position do you play? He said, I play left out. Well, nobody's left out in the kingdom of God. We all have a position to play. We're on the same team. So he said, We strive together. We're on the same team. We strive together in prayer. Romans chapter 15, verse 30, Now I urge you, brethren, by Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Strive together in your prayers. Can you imagine what would happen If we all really prayed. Steve had us to have a time of prayer a while ago. And Steve, while we were praying, of course, you mentioned Rick. And I was thinking of a lot more also. You know, Rick and Bob Newell and Larry Johnson, Caroline Sharp, Barbara Porter. I was praying for a lot of people. Can you imagine what would happen if we really came together as a team to pray. I know Jim Whitmire, our deacon, the chairman of deacons, said in deacons' meeting last Monday night that he's considering. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is what you're going to do, Jim. I'm just, but he said, you know, I want, he said to the deacons, I want you to think about. Let's set aside a time at our deacons' meeting when those who have real needs can come and maybe go into a room and some of you deacons who are called to do it. 
that you go in there and you pray for these people. What would happen if we came together, saw ourselves as a team of prayer, and that we all really prayed together? Striving together in prayer. Striving together against sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 4, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Folks, what would happen if we came together not as an inquisition, but as, as the body of Christ against sin within our community? Can you imagine that? That all the churches who believe in the Lord, who believe in prayer, who believe in the power of prayer, if we got together and just prayed for our city, do you think it would make any difference? If we got together and we stood against those things that are destroying the community, do you think it would matter? What about in our nation? That that if the people of God would unite, come together as a team to stand for those things that are right and against sin. He goes on striving together for the faith, to share the gospel for the faith. It's my prayer, and I've been praying about this. You know, I would pray that, Lord, stir up every Sunday school class we have. Every ministry we have, every organization we have, stir our hearts, Father, that we want to see people hear the good news of Jesus. We sing, I love to tell the story. It's a beautiful song, but do you love to tell the story? Do you ever tell the story? Do you tell people about Jesus and how he's changed your life? Paul says that we come together, we strive together, we are a team Sharing the faith, the good news of Jesus Christ. He talks about the conduct of the Christian and then the courage of the Christian in verse number 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. The word no way alarmed or the phrase no way alarmed is a picture of a horse that is shying away from battle. And Paul is saying that we do not shy away, but we move forward in courage. That is a needed admonition because oftentimes we are discouraged. I'm reminded of the people in Israel when they sent in the twelve spies, and the spies came back, ten of them, saying after they had been to the promised land, we can't go in. They're giants over there, and we are like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't go in. And the people were discouraged. And the Bible says in Numbers 14, 1, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. They were discouraged. And they didn't go in. Satan has always used threats against the people of God. That was true concerning the disciples. And Acts 4 says, And when they had threatened them further, they let them go. Now that is a story about... The disciples, when they told him, don't speak anymore in Jesus' name. Don't tell anybody else about Jesus. Don't be telling these stories about Jesus. And they threatened them. Folks, the church is threatened all the time today. We're threatened by the IRS. If you do this, you're going to lose your tax exemption. One of these days, I hope we do. 
One thing I just like to see is do something and cause us to lose it. We're threatened by the ACLU that suits are going to be filed against the church if, if the church does this, if the church does that. There's always been threats. But I want you to look at the testimony of verse 28 in no way alarmed. Don't shy away by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. He says we respond with courage because of what those threats say. It says that those who threaten the work of God, God will deal with. That's God's business. God will deal with that. But he says, but when you as a believer are threatened for doing the things of God, understand that is an indication that you belong to God. Whenever you stir up people because of your righteousness, he says that is an indication, that is a sign that you belong to God. So he says, don't shy away. We are to live our lives and go forward in courage. And then there's the conflict of the Christian in verse number 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Now, there are those people who tell us that if one is a Christian living for God, that you can expect prosperity and blessings and health and so forth. The Bible says you can expect conflict. Paul reminds them that they are saved. The Philippians were saved. Folks, salvation is provided by Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says that Jesus Christ came because of God's love, that He died on the cross. He took our place. He paid for our sins. So our salvation is provided by Christ. It is procured by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul is saying to the Philippians, and he would say to us now, because of faith in Christ and God's grace, you are saved, but that does not exempt you from suffering. Now, a lot of times that's confusing to us. That's hard for us. Because we believe that if I'm doing the right thing, then I ought not suffer But the Scripture says that we ought not be surprised because we are going to suffer. Verse number 30 again. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul had suffered in the past. In fact, he had been imprisoned in Philippi for casting a demon out of a girl, and her masters are no longer making money off of her. She had the gift of divination or the spirit of divination. And so they imprisoned him. When he is writing this letter that is very positive and encouraging, he is writing from a prison. He is imprisoned for the faith. And yet Paul always saw himself as being victorious in Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Paul suffered. He said, You've seen the conflict in me, the suffering in me. And Paul says that we also will suffer in Christ. Now, according to the Scripture, suffering is acceptable. Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, You suffer for righteousness, 
When you suffer for righteousness, blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. It's acceptable. It's a partnership. Suffering is a partnership. The Bible says in 1 Peter 4.13, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Do you realize that when you are suffering because of a commitment to Christ, the Bible says that you are a partner with Christ in suffering? Suffering is a prelude to glory. In other words, we suffer now, there's glory later. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.11, He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Folks, Jesus suffered and then he was glorified. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus suffered. He endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. He endured the cross. And then he was glorified. We suffer before we are glorified. Paul wrote in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You've probably heard the story, but it, it illustrates so well what I'm saying here about the missionary couple who had spent all of their life on a foreign field serving the Lord. Very, very poor conditions, but they had spent their life there. They were coming home as a retirement. They were coming home. They were on a ship. On the ship with them was a celebrity that everyone knew. When they arrived at the dock back in the United States, there was a large throng of people, a band, people to welcome the celebrity. He had been on a week. Uh, Cruz, he had gone away, he had come back, and now that all of these people turned out to welcome him. The missionary couple looked at each other, and nobody was really there to welcome them home. They'd given all of their life in ministry, in difficult circumstances, but there was no one to welcome them. And so the man said to his wife, he said, it just doesn't seem right. That this guy has been gone for a week and he comes back home and they got a throng of people there to meet him. And we've been gone on the mission field all of our life and we come home and there's nobody to meet us. And she looked at him and very wisely said, honey, we're not home yet. Let me conclude. You have received the treasure. Someone shared the gospel with you. Perhaps it was a parent, maybe a Sunday school teacher or someone else, but someone shared the gospel with you. Now it becomes your responsibility to defend the faith and pass it on. If you don't pass it on to the next generation, if we don't pass it on to the next generation, then they will not receive it. Paul says we are soldiers defending the faith of the gospel. The gospel has been entrusted to you. It's a treasure that you hold, but it comes with a responsibility 
to pass it on to others. Let me challenge you and let me encourage you that this week you pass the gospel to somebody. Tell somebody about Jesus, His love, and His sacrifice. And if you have never received His grace, if you have never come to know Him, I pray that today will be the day that you do that. Our gracious Father in God, we come to a time of invitation. And I pray, Lord, for we who have received the gospel, that we'll understand our responsibility and opportunity to pass it on to others. Father, especially today, I pray for those who have never received Christ, that they might be drawn to Him by Your Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please, as we all stand together. The choir is going to sing. The invitation is extended. The staff will be standing here to receive you. To come and join the church, to give your heart to Christ, you come. We'll greet you as you do.